that we are continuing our sermon series on the attributes of God. And as I shared during the call of worship and the prayer confession, the attributes of God are, are perhaps the most important truth that we need to study and meditate upon. Because, the attrib- because it is only when our minds and our hearts, when we ponder and convince and when we chew on these attributes of God, then those under, that understanding of the attributes of God lead us into worship, praise, obedience, courage. Worship, praise, thanksgiving, love, obedience to God are all byproducts of a mind that knows who God is. You will not be able to worship him and praise him and love him and serve and obey him if we are ignorant of his attributes. So I was at the youth service last week because it was like the parents' youth day service. And God blessed Pastor Daniel because the, the impression that I got when I was there sitting amongst the youth group is these young people, I don't want to judge all youth, I'm pretty sure some kids are fine, but most of them, I could tell that they have no idea of what is being taught to them. They just kind of sit, and in Korean, he goes, bong, bong. They're just there. They have these words flying, being spoken to them. But who Jesus is, it's not registering them. It is perfectly possible for a person to raise up in the church, do a lot of churchy things, and remain in the level of just no understanding about who God is. It is perfectly possible to come to church for 50 years and have no idea of the attributes of God. You understand? If there is no worship, praise, obedience to God in your life, the diagnosis is because you don't understand who God is, and you're not chewing on his characteristics. A few examples. Number one, praise. Psalm 146, like I said in the call of worship, the psalmist can praise God and call people to praise God because the psalmist knows that the Lord is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is a self-existing one. He is a sovereign one. He creates all things. Everything unfolds in accordance to his plan. Because the psalmist knows this, his heart leads him to praise. If the psalmist didn't know God was Yahweh, he could not praise God. Another example. This guy named George Mueller. Here's one of my heroes. George Mueller lived in the later 1800s, early 1900s in England. He dedicated his life to prayer and orphanage, and running orphanages. He has 50,000 prayers answered. He journaled, and he has 
he could count 50,000 prayers God miraculously answered. For example, he, was, he ran an orphanage, and the orphanage ran out of food. And he had no idea where the next meal was going to come from. Thousands of orphans are, are hungry. He had no idea where the next food is going to come from. But he prayed all night. Early in the morning, there's a knock at his door. He opened the door. They said a baker who was delivering a truck full of bread. His tire, like, gave out right in front of the orphanage. And the guy said, I have all this bread. I don't know what to do. Do you know, do you have any use for them? George Mueller says, I know where we can use those bread. This supernatural intervention of God, Mueller said, happened 50,000 times in his life. What is George Mueller's secret to answer being, at, being the recipient of such miraculous prayers? He says every morning, he makes it a priority to fill his mind, to warm his heart, with the knowledge of God. He studies the word. No matter how busy he is, he studies his word five chapters, six chapters a day, filling his mind with the proper understanding of God. When his mind is filled with the proper understanding of God, he frames every episode that happens to him in life, he frames it within the purview of who God is. A lifetime of enjoying God and being filled with understanding of him led him to be convinced that everything that is happening to him, whether good or bad, is for, it's because God loves him and it's because it is for his best. Even when his wife was on the sickbed, dying of a disease, he said, God is allowing this suffering to my wife and me because God is loving, and because I know this is God's best for me. If she lives, then God loves me, and it is for me and my wife's best. If she dies, God loves me, and her death is still for my and my wife's best. His wife died. He says, This is for my best. This is because God loves me and loves my wife. The tragic thing of his life, he was able to frame it in the light of who God is because he spent a lifetime meditating and dwelling and thinking about the attributes of God. Are you meditating on on the attributes of God on a daily basis? Where is God in your mind on an everyday basis? Yesterday, I went to Georgetown because I'm such a good husband, right? My wife really likes Georgetown, right? So I went to Georgetown, ate at a ridiculously expensive, like, Italian restaurant. I, I went there for the lunch menu, right, hoping that I could, you know, get a, Discounted a lunch menu, but lunch stopped at 3.30. I made it in 
And these, and these, that Italian restaurant did not, they were really like, you know how McDonald's and their breakfast menu, they were really like strict about when they stopped serving lunch. So I had to pay dinner prices at 3.40 in the afternoon. Man, was I bitter. And they gave you this lunch. It was good, right? I ordered the octopus leg, right? It's good, right? It was good. And then afterwards, right, I tried to visit Joe at Blue Bottle Coffee, but Joe wasn't there. Tried to get my free coffee from Joe, but he wasn't there. He just left, the guy said. I go, oh, more money at Georgetown. Oh. Right? So it was great coffee, right? So it was a good time. I loved going to Georgetown, right? They're my peeps, right? But then I was praying yesterday, and I was reflecting upon the meal that I had. And I realized this meal that I had was amazing. It was done by real Italians, not guy by name, guy named Chad in the, in, in, in the kitchen. Chad didn't do it. Bernicio did it. Right? And he didn't, the ingredients wasn't from, you know, a corporate factory somewhere. It was from the Italian marketplace. I'm thinking that's, that's what it was. And it was reflecting upon the plate that I ate. And I realized that plate was from the hands of God. Right? God raising up the Italian chef. God raising up this amazing ingredients. God, God like, Allowing that octopus to be caught in the sea so that that octopus leg can be on my plate. Everything was the provision of God. And when I would start to realize that, I was praising the God for the meal at 1 a.m. last night. I didn't do it at 3.30 because I was bitter. But 1 a.m., I was praising God for the meal. I go, Lord, you provided me with that meal. Oh, Lord, it is wonderful. Blue bottle coffee. I'm a fan. Never going to Starbucks ever again. Man, that blue bottle coffee, I loved it so. The environment, it was very communal, right? It's very, let's everyone love each other in like open space, right? Open windows. I thought I was in California for crying out loud. The coffee bean was great. I was praising God for the coffee last morning at 1 a.m. in the morning. Because I knew the coffee and the meal was from the hand of God. Framing that meal in the light of God's existence, in the light of God's providence, in the light of God's attributes, filled my heart with praise. My dear friends, that is how we ought to live. Meditating upon the attributes of God and interpreting every episode of our lives in the light of his attributes. That is the call to be the Christian. The number one problem that, Christ, that a lot of churches have these days is they are focusing on their priorities, prioritizing the human experience more than the attributes of God. The center place of every church is my experience with God rather than starting with the attributes of God. Churches are focused on how to make people feel good, how to make people into better disciples, 
how to make people hate the Democrats and vote Republican, right? How to solve the race, like racism issue. We're focusing on the human experience rather than the attributes of God. Focusing on the human experience will never make people holy. It is allowing leading people to reflect upon the attributes of God that makes people holy and, and worship him. The biggest difference between the way that I lead prayer meeting when I was in college and the way that I led prayer meeting here in Embrace is what I was focusing on. When I was leading praise when I was, when I was a young, dumb, passionate college kid, the college kids, I love you, but your understanding is shallow, but your passion is deep. That's, that's great, but it's not, like, great. So I was just dumb and passionate when I was in college. I was a dumb, passionate Christian. And dumb, passionate Christian, I begged God, Lord, bless my ministry. Lord, bless this Sunday worship so we can feel your presence. I was focusing on God blessing me so that we can have a better experience. When, I was leading, when I'm leading prayer meetings here in Brace, I do none of that. I open up the Bible, and we just talk about who God is. And when we talk about who God is during prayer meeting, June can attest to it. Oh, the prayer meeting is rich, just like the meal I had yesterday. Rich, lively, because talking about God with a Christian for one hour, it fills our hearts with praise. Start with the attributes of God. Who is God that we come to worship? We studied for the last few weeks. He is a self-existing one. He is the one who truly exists. We don't really exist, right? Like the psalmist said this morning, we're here, we're born, yay, and then we die. Human beings don't eternally exist. We're here for a moment and we fade away. God exists eternally. He is the one who truly exists. We are mere shadows and fogs. He, he exists independently from you. He exists. And he, and he is sovereign. He is omnipotent, all-knowing, omnipresence. He is everywhere. I'm sorry, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Omniscient. He knows all things. Omnipresence. He is everywhere. He, everything unfolds because he planned it, because he willed it, and he is in the world, in the, in the everyday occurrences of the world to make his will happen. Everything unfolds in accordance to his plan. What I told my daughter this morning, I said, baby, you know what I'm going to preach about this morning? She says, no. And I said, it is God's plan was ultimately going to happen. Human beings believe that our plan is going to happen the way we want it to, We're, but, but, not, but no, none of it works out the way we want it to. It is ultimately God's plan that will happen. That is happening and will happen because he is sovereign. Our God is a self-existing one. He has a mind. He has a strength. And he is present everywhere to make his will happen. But this God who, is, who exists, who is all-knowing, he's also right, he is correct, he is righteous, and he is loving. This is the God that we worship. 
It is our call to constantly meditate upon these natures of God. The topic that we're going to talk about this morning, the attributes of God that we're going to talk about this morning, is God is faithful. One of the key attributes of God is his faithfulness. What does it mean for God to be faithful? Man, I'm, I'm, I, too much passion when I'm starting out. I've got to pace myself here. One second. What does it mean for God to be faithful? The Hebrew word for faithful is aman. The Greek word for faithful is pistos. And these two words convey an idea of stability, right? Um, stability and reliability. Okay? The, like, the image is a pillar that supports a large building. Those pillars can support large buildings. You know those buildings aren't going to fall if large pillars are supporting that building. You need reliable pillars for the buildings not to fall. So the idea of God's faithfulness is he is reliable. You can trust him. He is reliable, and we can trust him because he will do everything he's going to say he's going to do. Reliability of God means he's going to do everything he says he's going to do in accordance to his will. Right? Everyone understand? That's what faithfulness of God means. Once again, in your smart group, we'll ask you, what is the faithfulness of God? It is the attribute of God where, where he is reliable because he's going to do everything he said he's going to do. He is not like us. You know, like us, hey, let's have lunch. Sure, let's have lunch. And we never do. That's not being reliable, right? Hey, let's meet on let's meet on on the on third of September to have small group, right? Live, and we never show. That's not being reliable. Oh, I just I just rebuked my small group just now, right? That's not being reliable. Being reliable means he's going to say what he's going to do, and God always does what he says he's going to do. He will do everything he says he's going to do. People have a wrong idea of what it means for God to be faithful. When we think of God's faithfulness, we think of God is going to work out the everyday occurrences of my life to make my life experience in this world pleasant. When, when, you know, when Christians think about God's faithfulness, we think about, oh, God's going to... Help me, rescue me, so that I will have a pleasant experience in this world. How do I know this is true? Joel Austin's ministry is based on this definition of God's faithfulness. Joel Austin says, you know, I know you're in trouble now, but God's going to deliver you. You're in, you're going, to, favor of God is coming your way. That's his favorite word, by the way, favor of God. It's going to be a season of multiplication, right? The doctor's report that's not going to be true. He's going to deliver you from the doctor's report. He's going to deliver you from your addiction. He's going to deliver you from your problems. Why? Because Joe Austin says that's because God is faithful. How do I know? I listen to Joe Austin every day. I find him fascinating. I really do. The feel goodness, shallowness of his theology, I find it fascinating. But that's what he's saying. His definition of faithfulness of God is God rescuing you from your troubles in this life. 
while certainly God does help his people in this life, the focus of God's faithfulness is not our well-being in this world. The focus of God's faithfulness is him doing what he says he's going to do in accordance to his will. What does he say he's going to do in his word? He's going to save people and make, make a certain group of people his. He's going to save people. He's going to raise up a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belongs to him. And he's going to raise up these, he's going to save these people, not because these people are nice, but because he is a God of grace. When he says he's going to save people, he's going to save people and make a, raise up a people for himself. He also says he's going to judge people and their sin. And he is going to judge people on, like, on their sin. I'll explain this later on. And he also says, 1 Corinthians 15, one day when Christ returns, Christ is going to defeat all the enemies of God and he is going to set the world in order once again. That is what he is going to do. God is going to save people. He's going to judge sin. He's going to make this fallen world into a created, beautiful order the way he created it to be. That's what he said he's going to do and he will do it. And that's exactly what is happening in the book of Lamentations. Like I said, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah the prophet. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's mission was just one, he just had one mission. Tell the people of God that judgment is coming. If you read the book of Jeremiah, it's all about God judging Israel. Because Israel broke their covenant with God. God said, obey me, follow me, obey my precepts, and you will live. If not, you will die. And God warns them through hundreds of years not to fall away from him. But Israel said, ah, no thanks, I'm going to follow the way that I want to. I'm going to follow my own heart. Despite hundreds of years of warning for Israel not to turn, not, not to turn away from God, Israel turned their hearts away from God. And as a result, God sends Jeremiah to, to tell the people of Israel that the judgment of God is coming. God is going to raise up a nation far away, the Babylonians, and they're going to come. They're going to destroy the city, destroy your land, and hold you in captivity. Jeremiah was preaching this for 40, 50 years. Lamentations was written when what he preached about actually happened. Jeremiah is witnessing what he, what, what he was preaching all his life unfolding before his eyes. It's one thing for me to stay up here and say, God is going to judge your sin and my sin. But it's another thing to witness that thing happening right before your eyes. Jeremiah is witnessing that. 
what is happening when the Babylonians come and seize the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city where God dwelt with his people, the temple. But that city is utterly destroyed. Alistair Beck, my hero, I'm quoting Alistair Beck so that people won't plagiarize, accuse me of plagiarism. Alistair Beck says, the way that we could empathize with what Jeremiah is going through, he says, imagine New York right after 9-11. The whole city in ruins. People feeling lost. There's a huge mourning. There's a huge cry. There's a lament that is going on in that city because of the destruction that just happened there. If you want to feel this lament, I suggest you go to the 9-11 memorial. I was there like three years ago. You can still feel the sadness of 9-11 when you visit the memorial. When you look at the ruins, when you look at all the peoples who died, they have all, they have, there's a room with, they have every picture of everyone who died. There's re, like relics of broken pipes and fallen buildings. There is no happiness in that place. It's just a somber sadness. That is what Jeremiah is living out when he's writing Lamentations. The royal family were executed by the Babylonians. Priests were stripped of their position, humiliated and imprisoned, and sometimes killed. People were tortured to death by the Babylonians. Another Alex Derbeg example. You know how the Babylonians killed people? They would, they would draw large people into this very narrow, between two very narrow walls. And they would shove people in those very narrow, in between very narrow walls where you can't move. You can't go, go up, you can go back, you can't go down because you're just suffocated with people. And the Babylonians let people suffocate in that condition. Imagine being trapped amongst the body of people who can't get out. That's what's happening to Israel when the judgment of God fell upon them. Jeremiah is under no illusion who is causing this? He read, right, in these verses. He has driven me and brought me into darkness. He is God. Surely against me, God turns his hand again and again the whole day long. God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. God has broken my bones. God has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and turbulence. He attributes everything to God. God is doing this. He's using the Babylonians, and the Babylonians would be judged by God because of for doing this. But God is doing this. 
this is the portion of the sermon where you, where you feel offended. Because this is going against your idea of a nice and kind Jesus who will surely not hurt anyone. So once again, more important than our, than our well-being in this world, God's faithfulness is about God doing what he said he's going to do. Israel is living out what God said he's going to do. You must think, it must not be fair for God to treat Israel this way. But if you actually read what Israel did when their hearts are against God, you will be appalled in how they live. Israel going against God is not just not coming to church on Sunday, but their hearts away from God is causing great harm in that country, within the country. Read Judges, read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and see what happens when Israel's hearts are far from God. Infighting happens. The tribe of Benjamin starts warring against one another. Countless lives are lost because of the infighting. The priest of God, who truly, the prophets of God, who, who, who teaches the correct things of God, they're murdered and slaughtered. Women are abused. Read the Old, Old, Old Testament. When Israel follow after their hearts, the first victim are always women. Women are abused. This is what happens when Israel turned their hearts away from God. Damage and evil and injustice. God warns them time and time again, stop, come back. Israel says, no. So God lets this judgment happen on them. What is happening to Israel the destruction that is happening in Israel is also the faithfulness of God. Do you understand? Faithfulness of God is God saying, God doing what he says he's going to do. And God told Israel, I'm going to punish you and destroy you if you don't come back. And that's what God is doing. Jeremiah knows this. Yes, Jeremiah is writing these, this chapter about how in pain he is. But he never questions. God's love or God's faithfulness. In fact, in verse 41, we didn't read today, in verse 41 and 42 in Lamentation chapter 3, Jeremiah says, Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled and you, and we, and you have not forgiven. Despite this crazy pain that he's going through, Jeremiah, in verse 41, it's saying all this is happening to us because we rebelled against God. He's not wrong for doing this. That's what Jeremiah is saying. This punishment is God's faithfulness. Are we all clear what's happening here? And yet, 
Jeremiah says in verse, what verse is it? In verse 19, 20, he says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, but still continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, which means he is depressed. Verse 21, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Wait a minute. Jeremiah is saying all this suffering is happening because of God. And yet, in verse 21, he says, I have hope. And he talks about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. How do you reconcile these two? Are you confused, Haran? I'm confused. God is punishing Israel in real ways, and yet Jeremiah is also saying God is love. What? Why does he say that? Because Jeremiah knows the judgment of Israel is God's faithfulness, God doing what he said he's going to do. But in Jeremiah, God also told Jeremiah to tell the Israelites, I'm not going to fully destroy you. Specifically, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 6 and 7, he says, Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy the abundance of peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity, and I will rebuild them as they were before. God told Jeremiah to tell Israelites of the pending judgment, but God also told Jeremiah to tell Israel, you're not going to be completely destroyed, Israel. I will rebuild you, and I will make you healthy again. Jeremiah knew because God has promised healing and rebuilding, and because Jeremiah knew God is one who does what he said he's going to do, even though he's seeing destruction before his eyes, his mind knows that one day God is going to rebuild his people. Because Jeremiah was fully convinced that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, God is going to rebuild his people once again. That is why Jeremiah says, da 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 da. Is this ESV? I guess it's ESV. I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never. Okay, so, never mind. So, Jeremiah knew, right? In the NIV version, it says, Israel will not be consumed, which means, Israel will not be completely destroyed. Jeremiah knew Israel was not going to be completely destroyed because God said he is going to rebuild them. So even though his life experience at the very moment is sadness and depression, he still knows that the mercy and the kindness of the Lord is coming. Jeremiah knew the destruction that was going to happen and it is happening before his eyes. But Jeremiah also knows that God is going to rebuild that kingdom. And therefore, Jeremiah has hope. Jeremiah died before his people were, God's people were, were, were rebuilt. He died before then. But even though he didn't see with his eyes the rebuilding, he didn't doubt that God was going to rebuild his people. 
because Jeremiah knew the faithfulness of God, he could still praise God's loving kindness that he's ultimately going to show his people. Are we clear? Jeremiah knew God was faithful. God is going to do everything he's going to say he's going to do. Do you know God is faithful? Do you know God is going to do what he said he's going to do? Yesterday, back to Georgetown, I was wonking the streets of Georgia. Where was I going? After, you know, blue bottle, cross the street, right? Went to Georgetown Cup. That's such a touristy thing to do, right? Oh, I felt, I felt embarrassed. Oh, I go to Georgetown Cup, went in that line like a tourist. Oh, right? My daughter, my wife wanted it. As I was walking to Georgetown Cupcake on the M Street, I heard a preacher saying, the judgment of God is coming. If you do not repent, second death is coming. Is he wrong? It's consistent with scripture, right? You may question his methodology, right? But what he says is what is written in scripture. And if, you, if people don't repent, you're going to be judged and you're going to die. People in Georgetown didn't care. They either totally ignored him. My daughter said, she thought he was a cop giving directions. I go, what? You got your hearing checked or something? People either thought they were ignoring him, they either thought he was an idiot, or they mocked him. All didn't think that what he said was true. They live out their everyday lives, enjoying their George Georgetowniness with their man buns and gourmet coffee and fast fashion. Man, H&M doing gangbuster business, by the way. But holy moly. They're going around with their man buns, their, their, their gourmet coffee, their H&M bags, going to their bars and hamburger joints thinking that, that what that man was saying is not true. But God is saying, what that man is saying is true. These people frame their lives apart from the will of God being unfolded in this world. How about you, Christian? Are you looking at your life, constantly being aware of God's movement in this world? Look, y'all, everything what God says in his word is going to happen. And it is happening in the world right now. How do you know? God's judging sin in this world right now. Did you know that? In this world, God is judging people for their sins. Right now, how do you know? Death. 
scripture is clear. Because of sin, death came into the world, and people die every day. You know how many people die in the U.S. in a given day? I did research, and I'll tell you. They say 6,500 people die in the U.S. every day. Just in the U.S., 6,500 people die every day. More on Sundays than other days of the week. I don't know why that is. That means if 6,500 people die every day, 2.37 million people die in the U.S. every, day, every, every year. I know those deaths, a lot of it is tragic, and there's a lot of sadness in those deaths. There is. And whereas in those deaths, there are Christians, including those death figures. But for the Christian, death is not judgment. Death is sleep, and you awaken with the, in the presence of God. So for the Christian, death is not judgment. Death is mere sleep. When you awake, you'll be with the Lord. But if you're not a Christian, even though that death is causing great sorrow and sadness to the people's lives, of the, of, 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 of the family members and friends of the people who die, Bible is clear, that death happens because of God's judgment over sin. God said he's going to judge sin, and that is an everyday occurrence reality. The world will never be what you think it ought to be. It just won't. The world will never be the way you plan it out to be. It won't. It just won't. The world is the way God said it's going to be, and it is happening right now. We're all just dumb thinking that the world is the way we think it ought to be. We're just enamored by that idea. That's not reality. The reality of the way the world works is the way he said it's going to work, and it is working the way he said it's going to work. Death shows that that's true. I don't want to be harsh about death. I know death is the great, this most sad, sorrowful thing that can happen to a survivor. I understand that. But it doesn't change the truth of what God says. The cause of what that death is is because of people's fallenness in sin. God also said he's going to raise people up. Rather than punishing, the, punishing people for their sins, he's going to raise, he's going to raise the people up. He's going to forgive them. He's going to forgive them by, by, by giving them Jesus Christ who will be their atoning sacrifice for their sins. And when people believe in Jesus Christ, they won't die. They will be resurrected. God is doing that right now. There are people being saved right now. As you are hearing the gospel, there are people who are being saved right now because God is doing what he said he's going to do. God saved people by costly giving his son to save them. The gospel message, like I said two weeks ago, when I talked about love, it took God, it takes God much pain to love us. This is what I want to tell you about love. Number one, caveat. Let's all get married. Marriage is great, right? Just wonderful being married and being a parent, right? But let's be real here, people. When you love someone, it is painful. You parents of newborns certainly will understand that. 
when that little tyke doesn't go to sleep? Or is it painful? It was so painful for me, I had to move out of my house and let my mother-in-law take care of my son. Oh, my gosh. I know your pain. When you actually love people, when you actually marry someone, like I said, all their burdens become yours. The burdens of their family issues and their, their sin issues and their pride issues and their just unresolved things issues becomes yours, and it is very, very painful. Christianity is the only religion that says loving someone is incredibly painful. God took great suffering to love us, to save us. Do you understand? He did it not because we're good people, but he said it, he did it because he said he was going to do it. Question, my friend. Do you know God suffered to love you? I was listening to like a podcast with this theologian named Michael Heiser. And he said, God had two options. He could, after he created people, he had two options. He could let people live how they want to live, and then his justice will judge them and send everyone to hell. Or he could suffer, gave up his son to, look, to save people. Rather than choosing everyone to go to hell, he chose to, to, to pain himself to save people be his people. Christianity is that we are saved because God suffered to save us. And the reason why God suffered to save us, it is because he said he's going to do it and because God is agape. It isn't because you were loving or deserving or because you were raised in a Christian home, right? It wasn't any of that. You're saved because he took it upon himself to love you and suffer for you. My dear friends, is that how you define your Christianity? Do you define your Christianity in terms of God's suffering love for you? And because he suffered, you're raised again. Do you define your Christianity that way? Or is it the most natural thing in the world to God to love someone like you? He didn't love you because of you. He loved you because he's faithful to his word. If you're a Christian, not only did he promise to save you, he promised to send your Holy Spirit to intervene in your life, to work in your life so that you will have, you will, you will have genuine faith, that you will have genuine love. That's what he says, right? First James chapter 1, which we're going to go back to next week. James says, con con consider it all joy when you go through various trials. Various trial means any trial in your life. Whether it is a sickness, whether it is unemployment, whether it is a difficult spouse, whether it is whatever, like whether you stomp your toe on a, on, a, on a cardboard or something, and you does it hurt you if you stomp your toe on a cardboard? Never mind, right? Whatever pain that you're going through, James says, consider it all joy, Christian, for all those trials God is using to make your faith real. Holy Spirit is living in you to help you, to give you wisdom so that your faith will become real. Are you treating your problems like that? 
God says your problems are there so that your faith, through those problems, your faith will become real. That's what he said. Are you trusting in what he says? God says, my Holy Spirit lives within you, and my Holy Spirit will give you power and wisdom to make your faith real. Are you taking him up on, the, on his offer? God, last week, like two weeks ago, James says, not James, John says, 1 John chapter 4. God allows difficult people in your life, difficult people in terms of your boss, in terms of your spouse, in terms of your kids, in terms of your friends, in terms of your in-laws, whatever it is, God is allowing all these difficult people in your life so that he will complete his love in you, which means he will make you into a more loving person. Look, all the people that is pain in your patootie are there for God to perfect your love. Are you seeing the difficult people in your life in terms of that? He promised, though through those difficult people, he's going to perfect his love in you. Is that true for you? Are you looking at that difficult person and says, oh, opportunity for God for me to perfect his love in me? Or are you looking at the person and says, man, I wish that person would disappear? You need to look at every piece of your life, Christian, in terms of the promises of God. Do not look at your life as if it's like it, it, it is a meaningless event. If you are a Christian, every part of it God's going to use to unfold his will in your life. Be mindful of the purposes of God in your life. Do not think God is absent from your life if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, his purpose, he's working out his purposes in you. Please do not live ignorantly of his purposes. Seek his will every day. For everything unfolds the way he plans it. Because God is a God who is faithful. Let us pray.